can see on the screen a portion of the Korean War Veterans Memorial. Memorials, uh, war memorials, they confront us. They confront us with aspects of life that, uh, frankly, I think at times we just soon all prefer to forget. But the fact is that they tell of real life. I mean, it is a reality. And war memorials, they prevent us from being disillusioned with the idea that life is simple and soft. There's an aspect as well of more memorials that, uh, that can be offensive. In our present day of our cultural, if you will, sensibilities, war can become very distasteful. It can be uh, pressing on us. And it's an interesting situation because here on Memorial Weekend, we are going to enter into one of two of the most prolific chapters in all the book of Joshua talking about war. This Sunday and next Sunday, chapter 10 and chapter 11. This is, uh, war is all in these passages and I think they're going to be powerful. I think that they're also going to be in reality. And I just want to let you know, I expect that in this discussion that we have this Sunday and next Sunday at some point or points, there's going to be an offensiveness that comes across because we're coming face to face with war and the realities of war. In an address to the graduating class of the Michigan Military Academy in June of 1879, William Tecumseh Sherman, a, a Union general during the Civil War and who later succeeded General Ulysses S. Grant and became commander of the general of the army said to these graduating cadets, he said, I've been where you are now and I know just how you feel. It's entirely natural that there should beat in the breast of every one of you a hope and a desire that someday you can use the skill you have acquired there. Suppress it. He said, you don't know the horrible aspects of war. I've been through two wars, and I know. I've seen cities and homes and ashes. I've seen thousands of men lying on the ground with their dead faces looking up to the skies. And then he went on to say, Men, I tell you, war is hell. Diary of a... Diary of a soldier from World War One confirms his words. And this soldier says, I'm sorry if these words are scrawled. My hands are shaking with adrenaline. These dark trench walls seem to be closing in on me and suffocating me. And the sky is a dull gray and rain is soaking my hair and my clothes and I'm frozen to the bone. I'm worried because I've lost feeling in both my legs and it pains me even to walk. My hands are as purple as the mangled bodies that lie about me. And all I can hear are exploding bombs muffled by the trench and the screams of agony. You can feel death here. For every hour, someone I know and someone I respect dies. The grief is now numbness. 
I think about my family day and night. And my mind whizzes from will I die tomorrow to how is my sister doing with her studies. I have to say I can't even imagine. Maybe some of you can. But I think the honest truth today is we come in really to a rather sublime day today and into a serious heavy text is that the majority of us in this room have a soft view of war. And I raise that because I think a soft view of the reality of war carries over into quite a soft view of the spiritual war that we all reside in. I think that shows in four possible areas. One of those includes a soft view of Satan. If people even think he exists, he's kind of viewed as that former angel that kind of copped an attitude with God at one point in time and he got the the divine boot out of the heavenly house and now he's kind of like that playground dude in the bullies me and pesters me and annoys me. Listen, I want for us to know, friends, Satan is no playground bully. He is wicked beyond wicked. He is only about himself and everything against God. He delights in bringing chaos into people's lives. He delights in it. And he seeks to take as many as he can to eternal hell with him. That's reality. We have a soft view on sin. Sin today, it's just an oops, it's a mistake, it's a disorder, it's a who doesn't do it, no one's perfect, so lighten up on me kind of a thing. Instead of the reality in this that sin is a choice to suffer. Sin brings chaos. Sin brings death. Sin brings damnation. It brings damnation into souls. It brings damnation into relationships. It brings damnation into everything bad on this planet. The only reason anything is good on this planet is because of God. We have a soft view on hell. Doug, don't even talk about it. By the way, please don't hellfire and brainstone me. And I'll just add, fourthly, we have a soft view on Christ. So often he's kind of viewed as that soft-spoken, English-accented, prissy man. From years in the past, who's kind of like a Mr. Rogers neighborhood predecessor guy. Who's walking around just duping a bunch of saps that are so weak and so in need of someone just to coddle them. But that's not true. He is the preeminent one. He is the preeminent Christ. As Nick read early, he is the one, he is the image of the invisible God. He created all things, all things in heaven and on earth. All things visible and all things invisible. All authorities, all rulers, all powers, all things. He is God in the flesh. Who was in fact illegally beaten to a living pulp. And at any moment in time, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. But he was illegally beaten to a living pulp, hung on a tree like a blasted piece of useless meat, sacrificed as a joke and as a political power play by many. 
but he did it for you and I. Who would do something like that? He's the... He's the revelation. <clears throat> He's the revelation four and five one. We're in heaven, John says, they're screaming, holy, holy, holy. Who, will, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the heavens are like, nobody, nobody's worthy. And then they declare, oh, the lamb that was slain, he's worthy, he's the one. And the heavens fall before this one. He's no English accented prissy sap. He is the Revelation 19 one that in the future he will come riding on a white horse named Faithful and True. And he is the one who will be coming with eyes blaming, flames of fire, clothed in a robe dipped in blood, called the word of God. And following him will be the armies of heaven to unleash heaven on hell. That's my savior. That's the reality of things. And we are at a time and in a day, we're friends, we are reminded, war is hell. And we are about to enter into a passage that talks about war. And here's the great news of this passage. This passage reminds, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this passage reminds you with the reality that he is loving and fighting for you. That's my king. And that's the passage we're going to. So let's go there. And God, I pray, as we enter into this passage, oh Lord, would you just show yourself? We're going to be confronted by war we're going to see horrific reality of war taking place and carnage. But God, you don't revel in war. You aren't that conquering, crushing God brute that just plows yourself over mankind without care. The fact of the matter is, Lord, that is who Satan is and that is what he does. We're going to see in this passage where people who fall before you rather than fighting you, you love them. And while you are fulfilling your purposes, you fight for your people. Maybe there's some today here that need to hear this text and that reality deeply and badly today. Maybe discouraged, feeling alone. But you love them. And you'll fight hell for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Joshua chapter 10. Wow, heavy stuff, isn't it? Joshua chapter 10, I'd uh, like for us just to begin by taking actually a look at chapter 9, a couple verses here. Verse 1 and 2 in chapter 9 of Joshua, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland across the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezites, uh, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all those Perizzites uh, heard this. 
And they gathered together, look at this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And then chapter 10, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, that's a review of last Sunday, had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, the the king of Jerusalem did. He feared greatly because uh, Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So uh, Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, to Purim, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Deber, king of Eglon. Does that not sound like Star Wars, by the way? Uh, saying, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the kings of the Amorites, kings of, uh, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces, went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, let me just begin with a question here. Why did the kings of chapter 9 and why did the kings of the beginning of chapter 10, and by the way, P.S., uh, ch- beginning of chapter 11 next Sunday, why do all these kings in this very beginning here, why do they choose to go to war against the Israelites? Actually, that's what's happening here. They're going to war against the Gibeonites, but they're all now part of the same team here. Why did they choose to war with that? And why didn't they do like last Sunday? I mean, when they heard from Joshua chapter 9 that the Gibeonites had pulled a punk deal on the Israelites. In other words, if you weren't here in chapter 9, they had gone and found a loophole in, in the Moses, in Mosaic laws that a distant country who would offer them peace and would fall down before them and be their servants, then they would not destroy them. They punked them. They only live like 10 miles away. And they came in with all the clothing and that whole thing, if you remember that story. And so they're coming in and, and then they made this deal. And by the way, the deal on it, it wasn't like they were trading baseball cards and, and, and the Gibeonites came in and gave them a fake baseball card and you're like, hey, come on, man, hey, give me. No, this was an agreement between nation and nation. And so uh, Joshua, when he found out that they were punked, he stayed to that deal, a man of his word, a people of their word. But why is it that the king of Jerusalem and such, why didn't when they heard that they punked them and they got their life saved, why didn't they go that way? Why is it that we love to fight? I would say that the reason that they did this, really the answer could be viewed out of James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, the battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you, uh, that you, may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Whoa. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred with God? Hey, uh, friends, we have to understand as we enter into this chapter that the reason that the king of Jerusalem went to war against the Gibeonites and Israelites, just like the other kings, this is really about a heart issue. This is, this is the reality of the, uh, what's within our hearts. These guys, at any point of time, could have fallen down before the Lord, but instead they want to fight. 
They could have fallen down the Lord. In fact, in Genesis 15, 16, as I brought up a number of times, it tells that God in his love for people made the decision that he was actually not going to be ju- bring judgment on the people here at this point in time for the reason that he wanted to give them time. The Lord doesn't want any to perish. The Lord will do all that he can to help people, but ultimately it's their choice. It's your choice. And here God has actually given them centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of time, hoping that they might repent. But we all of a sudden come all the way to this point in the story. And these people, after over 700 years of time, they don't want to repent. They don't want to fall. They want to fight. How interesting is that? Because there will be a time in the future, Revelation 9 tells us about, of the seven trumpets, seven trumpets of judgment that will be coming because God is coming to a point where the the times are ending and, and he's going to be pulling himself, if you will, and is sustaining grace from the earth and allowing judgment to be coming in on things. And it tells after six trumpets of judgment, it says the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or of their thefts. God is trying to get people's attention again and again and again and again, even in putting judgments. And still the nature of us is we want to fight God. Please understand This chapter and the next chapter, this is a war that's going on in the heart of all people. And it's showing themselves in the reality of what's taking place. These are five kings who would rather fight Yahweh than fall down and crown him. Verses 6 and 8. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. What's happened is, is uh, so the, the king of Jerusalem has brought his, brought his forces up to the Gibeonites. They're going to battle. The Gibeonites who punked out the Israelites made this agreement come and say, help us, save us. And the Israelites go, okay. We'll do that. Wow. Committed to their word. And so here they are coming. And look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, I love this. God steps into the picture. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them will stand before you. They're going to war. And what does God do? God steps in and God reassures his people. Hey, there's a huge principle out of this, everybody. And it's this. I don't need new truth. I need old truth, freshly applied. Here's what's interesting about this. What does God tell Joshua in this? God tells Joshua the exact same thing he told Joshua way back in chapter one. And later through the chapters, God has told Joshua this multiple times. Listen, my friend, I am with you. I'm with you. Go ahead. I've already got this. I've already gone before. I'm already fighting this. And I just bring it to us, folks. And I go, here's how encouraging this is. When life is moving along here for Joshua, the Lord steps in. He didn't have to step in. 
but he knows what's happening with his people. And he steps in at this time and he tells them words of encouragement. He reassures them, not with brand new information, just the same old stuff. You know, oftentimes we're looking for new truths. But you don't need new truths. We've got the old truths. And old doesn't mean that they're no longer applicable. Old means that they are so applicable. These are God's words. And therefore these words tell about God. And these are the words that we need to be in. And the spirit of God uses the word of God in the people of God. And I ask you and I, if you're looking for news truths, you're looking in the wrong places. You need to go here. In fact, Ezra did. Ezra 7.10. It says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. The idea of the Hebrew word there isn't just like when it was convenient. It didn't like fit in at some point in time uh, at the end of the day. It was this idea that Ezra uh, had this thing where he took his schedule and he planned any purpose and he scheduled it and made it a priority. Ezra studied the law of the Lord. It also reminds me of in Psalm 119.15. It says, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your way. So we have this picture of someone studying the law of the Lord, meditating on it, fixing their eyes on it. And I bring in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That says, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything, not most of it, not pieces of it, but everything we need for life and godliness he has given. And where is that? Verse 4, it says, in his very great and precious promises. Friends, what happens here is God doesn't bring new information. God just tells them the same old information that he's told them before, reassuring them in the present situation. That's what he needed to hear. And I just ask you, are you a person that is placing yourself in the word? Because if you're not someone who's placing yourself in the words of God, how is the spirit of God supposed to be using the word of God in your life? Every Sunday is not enough. You need to be feasting at the table, eyes in the word, so that the word of God can be coming, so that those old truths can be freshly applied. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. How sweet. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Verse 9, So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. God comes, he shows up, he speaks his truth into Joshua, and what does Joshua do? He applies it. I mean, here, freshly applied truth calls me to action. Freshly applied truth calls me to action. This isn't the kind of thing. I think nowadays, sometimes, especially in theological circles and amongst pastors and and leaders, oftentimes we can spend so much time in these theological discussions that sometimes it's like, you know what? Get out of the office and get doing it. You know, sometimes, literally, maybe we need to stop talking about it and start like up in the ante and are doing it. The word of God, we sit in it so that we can get up and do it. And that's what's happening here with Joshua. Verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Verse 10, and look at this. And the Lord threw them, these are the enemies, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow. 
at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. I'm not bringing up a map today and that's okay. You don't, you don't need it. Just kind of try and hang with me on what's happening here. In verse 10, there's four verbs. How many verbs? The first one is clearly the Lord Yahweh doing it. It's clearly in here. What's happening? Joshua's going, they're going to battle, and the Lord throws them into panic. Now, here's what's really interesting. Because the remaining three verbs in the original Hebrew actually, technically, do not assign a a subject to it or a person that's doing it. A decision has to be made here. So the Lord threw them into panic. And the next question is, is then who struck them, who chased them, and who cut them down? It's actually, if you go to some different translations and you read through it, you'll see there's a little bit different take on how they go with this. I'm going to give you a little bit of my take after some reading with it. There's an emphatic at the beginning of the verse from Yahweh, from the Lord himself. And actually, I think what these four verbs are talking about are all four things that the Lord did. That the Lord threw them into panic. The Lord struck them. The Lord chased them down. The Lord cut them. That's really what happened here. Now, were the Israelites a part of that? I think absolutely. But I just got to say, how cool is that? God engages his people. But I think the emphatic focus of the verb is God is the warrior here. I think that's the key idea here, a key principle that's happening. Yahweh is the warrior fighting for his people. We see this continued in verse 11. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them. And they're like hail stones, I'm guessing. I mean, how often is there hailstones in the Middle East? It must have just been funky weather. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. You have to pay attention with how the human author is writing this. He is trying to clearly help us see that, listen, God is not the one who is the beast just doing his thing and using his people. That's not what's happening here. The writer is emphasizing throughout the whole text that God is the one who's fighting for his people. He's the one who's going before. He's the one that's doing his work. And with this principle of Yahweh as a warrior fighting for his people, I just say, look at verse 14. It says, for the Lord fought for Israel. At the end of the chapter, we're going to read in verse 42, it says, I love this. The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. That's so important because it could have said, the Lord God used Israel to fight for his stuff. Doesn't say that. The Lord God of Israel. These are his peeps. He loves these people. And the whole emphasis of this chapter is God is fighting for his people. And I just want to say this right now already. Maybe you need to hear that today. You know Christ is your savior. And you're maybe feeling alone. And you're maybe feeling defeated. Like God, what's going on? I want to let you know out of this text. God loves and fights for his people. It just jumps off of what's happening here. Verse 12. And at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord. 
to the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. This is bold prayer. And he said in the sight of Israel, this is a public thing, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. <laughs> I just got to tell you, you'll never hear me praying that. And there's a good reason why. Uh, let's keep reading. Is this not written in the book of Jajar? I'm not going to go into that. Uh, I think what's right above there is kind of a quote out of that, of, that had told the story. And he's kind of using that in here as well. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of the man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Now, so many things we could talk about here, but I don't have the time and I'm not going to. But I want to hit two things that I think are items of encouragement. Number one, God heard Joshua. You know, we just walk by stuff like that that's written and we're like, yeah, okay, so he heard him. No, 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 friends, please hear this. God heard Joshua. It's just within that whole concept is this idea. There's a principle of relationship. There's this principle that God is fully aware of what's going on in your and my life. He knows it. He's aware of it. And he hears. Sweet. Second thing I want to bring out of this is God is not stingy with his stuff. God is not stingy with his stuff. <laughs> Here Joshua goes, and again, I don't know all the details of how this happened. Sun stop, moon stop. Now Joshua can't make that happen. He knows that's what's going on. But someone can. This is part of why I get irritated nowadays, uh, just being totally transparent with you, with uh, the whole worship of science today. Uh, I love science and a lot of it and so forth. But, you know, the laws of nature can be broken by the one who created it all. And here in this, you'll read some commentators and they may talk about it as though, well, you know, that was kind of a symbolic thing for this or that. No. Listen, the one who created the sun and the one who created the moon, by the way, he can go boop and boop and put it on pause. Yeah, but all the ramifications of the light waves coming. Hey, he's got all that covered as well. He's got it all covered. He can take care of it. He can work it. And he's not stingy with his stuff. He's not like, don't, don't, don't get in my, in my uh, sand pile, you know, Joshua. No, he's like, hey, my son, at your use, I can make it happen. The whole moon gig, I don't quite even get all that in the moon stuff. But it's like, hey, I got that covered. And God stops the whole thing. I just want, listen, listen, God is not stingy with his stuff. However, do remember out of James chapter four that I read to you a little bit earlier that it says you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask for selfish reasons so that you can do your thing. And God's like, listen, if, if we're on target with doing my thing, I am so not stingy with my stuff. Well, then I want a Ferrari. No, that's not quite fitting in the, God's thing necessarily. You can have a Ferrari, whatever. But you see what I'm saying here? This is so cool. Don't walk by these kinds of verses where it's like God hears and God is not stingy with his stuff. That means God loves his people. 
and he fights for his people. You are not alone, redeemed one in Christ. You have him going before. Booyah. Where am I at? Verse 60, sorry. Senior moment. I'm in the theater. I got that. Verse 16. Let's do some more reading and catch up here. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua the five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. I'm going to tell you, I haven't spent the time in all these texts, but the whole leadership thing, the king thing is so critical to the Lord. God holds those in leadership in a unique reality before him. And so they gather the kings. They've already won the battles, but they gather the kings. They put them in this cave. Um, Verse 19, but do not stay uh, there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack the rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. That's my warrior. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. God fights for his people. They all return safe. In war. What? Verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. It's very important for me just to make a comment here. This is one of these areas that will bring offense to us in our modern day view of war. This is not a military abuse thing. What's happening here is in the Old Testament... Uh, this act when connected with war symbolizes a resounding victory. This is a symbolic thing. In fact, you can go and take a look in 2, Timothy, or 2 Samuel chapter 22 and Psalm 18. It talks about this act of the, the feet on the neck and the representation symbolizing victory of war. Additionally, in the Old Testament, the foot symbolizes the sovereignty of the imposer and the subjection of the one under it. And you can go and see that in 1 Kings 5, Psalm 8, Psalm 47. And we can see here what's happening here is this, these are not soldiers that are uh, abusing their rights and kind of going and standing, standing on their necks and getting like a Polaroid and thinking they're really awesome and frankly just being punks. That's not what's happening here. This is a moment in time, and we can see this why Joshua, this whole symbolic thing that's taking place is a thing that is being used to remind them not to be afraid or dismayed. That God is fighting for them. They're not abusing these guys. It's just a symbolic act. We don't get it, but that's what was happening. 
Verse 26. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. Seems humane, inhumane, doesn't it? Listen, that was war in the ancient days. Have you ever watched Gladiator? Favorite movie, best movie of all time. In my opinion. And part of it is because it reminds me of what a soft view of war and life I have. People were viewed as a piece of meat. Friends, we have to remember in this what's taking place overall. Ultimately, this is about a spiritual war. God has given these kings, people who lead people. He has given these kings and the ones before them centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of gracious time that they might turn and fall before the Lord and repent and submit themselves to the Yahweh. But they haven't again and again and again and again and again. And the truth of the matter is, is we believe in judgment. The people that in the recent news in the last few months that have done some horrific things with bombs and over in England with, with the soldier over there. They need judgment, don't they? Proper, right judgment for their act. And we look at that and, and we cognitively tie that. That deserves proper judgment. And so does it here. Because the person that continues to reject, 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 falling before the Lord. I have something offensive to say. You will be held accountable for it. And the perfect judge will make the perfect judgment. And it is a warning. And it is a call. And it may be offensive, but it is true. We live in a spiritual war with hell. That's the reality. Verse 26, verse 27, I'm sorry. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave. They were already dead, which remains to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Makeda to Libnon and fought against Libnon. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. How sweet. How kind. And you can read the next verses and paragraphs and basically it's telling that Joshua continues this conquest of the southern portion of the promised land. Moving through city, city-state by city-state by city-state. 
And I'd just like for us to jump to verse 40. Because it's a summary of really the whole chapter. And it says this. So Joshua struck the whole land. The hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining. But devoted to destruction all that breathed. Wow. Just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, as all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. You know, this whole conquering of the promised land is a gift. This whole conquering of the promised land was really a gift to God's people. And not only was it a gift to God's people at the time, but the conquering of this promised land was a gift to all people. Please keep in mind of all this. What was God doing? God was fulfilling his promised to Abraham some seven centuries plus earlier that he was going to find a land. He had a land for his people, a land that would not be a vacation place, a land that they would not go and and just kick back and, and cruise out for the rest of life. No, no, no. But a land that would become a sending base place. This was to be the place that Yahweh, yes, fulfilling his purposes, yes, bringing judgment upon people that have rejected him. And the Old Testament tells us, and I've read some of it, I didn't even want to bring it today, but some of the abominable practices that these people were doing, killing their children. It's just unfathomable the kinds of wickedness that these people in this territory were doing. And God's like, I've had enough of this. I'm clearing this out. I'm bringing my people in for the purpose of giving them a place that this place would be the base for bringing redemption, the news of redemption to the rest of the world. That's what's happening here. That's why ultimately this is not just about a war between a certain set of people versus another set of people. This is the big picture spiritual war that's taking place. And what's happening here was intended to be a place that they would be sent out to the world and bring the good news of Yahweh. God is fulfilling his purposes, friends. And he desires and he yearns to have you and I join him. And not only to join him in the kind of a way where we're just like puppets or chess pieces or like saps. But in the kind of a way where you and I can experience what it is to be loved by and to be fought for by the creator of the universe. So I started by saying that war memorials are powerful and they're offensive and yet they are real. And I'd like to finish our time with one final war memorial.
power of the cross. You and I, sinners, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans talks about no one is righteous. No one can stand before God and make a plea that I've earned your favor. That would not be just before a holy God. We are hurting saps, caught in sin, doomed. But what does God do? Laugh at us in our misery? Mock us? No. The second person of the Trinity comes in the flesh to do for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. And the cross is offensive. It's offensive because it reminds us of our total sinfulness. And it's offensive to us because I want to take care of my problems, but I can't. But God did. For God so loved the world They give his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him not believe like I know he lived. No, no. So I talk about so much so that idea that it's like I know about him. I understand what he's done. I'm a sinner separated from God and I need to receive Jesus Christ as my savior and drive the stake in the ground. And Lord, I need your redeeming work covering me. I want to be on your team, Lord. If you've never done that, you stand before this war memorial and you should fear. I don't like to say that, but out of love I say that because the Lord will judge. He has to. And I would ask you that rather than fighting him, you would fall before him for the person that knows Christ as your savior know this before this <clears throat> war memorial no you are loved for he has fought for you and will continue to do so because yes he loves his purposes. And that includes you. Lord God, these are the kind of chapters and passages I just got to tell you, you know my heart, I'd just rather skip by. They're hard. They can be ugly. And boy, can they mess with our heads. It's easy to excuse you away in this day and age. 
It's easy to kind of try and make you palatable. But what's so amazing about you is when we see you for the real bold reality, we see you, that memorial reality, not a fake image, not a movie image, but the real image of what you have done. Oh God, you're amazing. The cross is an amazing reality. The empty tomb is an amazing reality. The fact that you are on the throne today is an amazing reality. The fact that anything good happens in this war zone called earth because of Satan, the fact that anything good ever happens is only, only because of your goodness and your grace and you holding back what could happen. God, you pull yourself away and all hell is going to be unleashed. But you are in the battle. And you are fighting. And we forget that far too often. You are powerful, you are amazing. we would just fall. Lord, if there's someone in here this morning that's not sure if they're in relationship with you, oh God, I pray you would love on them enough to keep them uncomfortable. Maybe their heart is beating right now. Oh, listen, friend, I tell you, grab someone who came with you. Come down after at the end of the service. We've got some people down here. Oh, but you need to know. You need to know that you know that you know that you've been redeemed in Christ. The Lord fights for his people. Thank you, Lord Jesus.